You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Yesterday morning, I found myself feeling incredibly blessed as I was attending the closing worship service of the Black Lives of Unitarian Universalist Symposium that happened in St. Paul last week. That service filled me up. It was the music and the storytelling and the singing and the laughing, hard and joyful truths that were told. One of the stories I heard yesterday morning went like this. It was a black elder speaking, and she talked about being part of the civil rights movement, about marching with Dr. King and so many others, and about how one night she was gathered with other leaders in the basement of a church in the deep south, planning how they would register black people to vote, and someone looked up and noticed that there was a cross burning outside. People had come to try and scare and threaten them, to stop them from the important work they were doing of trying to get themselves and others free. When they saw that cross burning, there wasn't a conversation. It just happened. They started singing louder, singing and singing and singing more loudly, more fiercely. It was the only thing to do in response. This is on my mind this morning. This morning, in the midst of all the injustice that still exists in the world, in this morning, when we have already dedicated four children and we will dedicate one more into a life of faith and possibility, in this congregation, we make promises to children and their families that we will be there together to protect the light in their heart and to help protect the light in all hearts in this world. It's the tradition of this church to give each child a rose on the day of their dedication. And it's a rose where we've taken the thorns off as a way to try to protect them. But we know that as hard as we try, we cannot protect ourselves fully or the children in this world or anyone from the thorns of life. There are accidents and tragedies and people who intentionally try to scare and hurt each other. May this be a place where we protect one another when we can. May this be a place where we plot and plan how to get our people and all people free. May this be a place where we learn to raise our voices for justice and when joy and troubles come, to let our voices rise in song louder and louder, more fiercely when we need it. So this morning, As we tell stories and listen to music, let's engage and sing and raise our voices. Come, let us worship together. This is uh, from William Stafford. Starting here, what do you want to remember? How sunlight creeps along a shining floor what scent of old wood hovers, what softened sound from outside fills the air. 
Will you ever bring a better gift for the world than the breathing respect that you carry wherever you go right now? Are you waiting for time to show you some better thoughts? When you turn around, starting here, lift this new glimpse that you found. Carry into evening all that you want from this day. This interval you spent reading or hearing this, keep it for life. What can anyone give you greater than now? Starting here, right in this room, when you turn around. So I've never had the words to describe it exactly. And it doesn't happen that often. It's maybe once or twice a year. Occasionally it happens when I'm meditating or sometimes when I'm out running and I don't have headphones in and I'm just focusing on my breathing. Sometimes it happens in worship through music most often, silence and music. But most frequently when it happens, it happens at night after I wake up from a very deep sleep. And I find myself blanketed by night in a different state of being. It's as if my entire identity, even my name, has been stripped away, and labels like minister, dad, partner, son, like even man, don't make sense anymore. It's not a frightening experience at all, but my ego, my sense of self-importance, my I feels completely gone. What I feel Instead, is this expansiveness, this openness, this timelessness, this sense of having dissolved into creation and being held in love by creation. There's a sense of being deeply beloved. The first few times this happened to me, I wondered, like, have I died? There was this sense of, what is this place, this space? Is this what death feels like, this open, connected place, this place so far removed from my own ego, from my own head, from my own little narrator. I think we all have this little fellow person being in our head that's just always chittering and chattering, talking about what's happening and what you should do next and what to make of that and why you're different or better or other than or whatever it is. And that little voice was quiet. Nothing going on there. The experience usually lasts a few minutes. I think it's a few minutes. I don't know for sure. And then I see the clock or I wander up to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water and I begin to come back into place, to be anchored in justinness in that house, in my house, and all the things that kind of hold me in reality. But while this experience is happening, I feel catapulted out of the normal patterns of my life and into a different consciousness. I feel like I'm touching eternity, touching a peace and a sense of belonging that is really beyond words and beyond understanding. So hearing the mystical and ethereal music that the choir was singing and the bells from our guest bell ringers, it really just brought me back. It brings me back to that experience. And I start to wonder, was that some sort of mystical experience that I was having that in the, these, these nights when I wake up? 
And I think about the mystics that I've read in seminary, and certainly I imagine some of you know many of the mystics and have read some of them. I think about the 13th century Sufi mystic Rumi, who experienced and wrote about this encounter with the beloved, this sense that God or the beloved is there and all of life is infused with that energy and our job is to awaken to that and to stay awake. Or I think of Teresa of Avila, the 16th century Spanish nun who wrote about these mystical experiences she had in prayer as she actually felt herself levitating in this place of union with God. And I think of Hildegard of Bingen who believed that the divine, the part of God and God in fact was in everything Every leaf and twig, every flower, every tree, everything was infused with that holy presence. Hildegard believed that by focusing on, say, an autumn leaf in Minnesota at this time of year and really falling into the wonder of that leaf. Have you held one of these leaves that are still radiant and you can see the colors and the stems? Like, how do you even make something like that? How does that, how is that even possible? And so if you hold that and you look at it and you fall into it, into the wonder and awe of that creation, then you begin to experience wonder and awe at all of creation and with the creator themselves. Mystics, broadly speaking, make those an organized religion. So I'm talking like bishops and ministers and priests and those who oversee the governing bodies of religious institutions. They make those folks uncomfortable because mystics refuse to be bound by the religious rules and constraints of their faith. As Mirabai Starr, author of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics, says, a mystic is someone who has and who wants an experience of union with the one. And the one may be God, it may be Mother Earth, it may be the cosmos. Said another way, rather than simply checking for the pulse of life, like, yeah, there's a pulse there, mystics they want a full-blown encounter with the sacred heart of life. They don't want to just be at the party watching life dance in front of them. They want to be in the dance, moving and shaking and experiencing that divine dance with everything else. This experience is rare, says Mirabai Starr, but everyone has these mystical experiences, I think, she says, where you momentarily forget that you are a separate ego, a separate personality, a separate self, and you experience your interconnectedness with all that is. Have you had something like that experience at some point in your life? I see a few nods. Like maybe put your hand up, let me know you're here. Yeah, you've, so some of us, you've had these experiences. Maybe not everyone, but we've had some of these experiences. And my guess is, is if you mine your life, you will actually discover that you've had several of these experiences, different points in time, perhaps at the birth of a child, yours or someone else's, perhaps at this moment where you encountered your own mortality in a profound way or are in that journey right now. These moments where the habits and patterns of your life fall away and you have this piercing insight of the deep connectedness of your life to all life to that thing that is larger than us and maybe you've forgotten about it because it was so important then you're like my life is going to be different and you kind of went back 
to your normal routine, but we've had those experiences, right? Um, we've, we've been there. We're in the same ballpark, right, uh, this morning. We're on the, maybe not on the same page, but like the same book. Just give me a little, uh-huh, we're with you. Okay, we're there, we're there. Richard Rohr, an author and a Franciscan friar, calls these kinds of experiences part of the perennial tradition, a tradition that survives over the centuries and the millennia. He explains it's a tradition that is part of really all of the world's religions and philosophies, and it points each of these religious traditions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, all these different faith traditions, they point to this divine reality, this deep interconnectedness that is inherent in all things, and it points to the soul's longing and capacity for union with that deep underlying connectedness, with that divine reality. And if the words divine reality don't work for you, let it land in your life what does. Maybe it's the natural world, whatever it is. But the gist of it is that there is something in us that longs to be connected with something bigger than us. In all of these religious traditions, Richard Rohr writes, beyond the creeds and the dogmas and the rules, there is a part of the tradition, and often it's the mystics within that tradition that hold this strand, that recognizes that we are a part of something more than we are just observing something. I'm going to say that again because this is the, the key piece of this. These mystics in these different traditions throughout time and history want us to know we are participating in something sacred and holy, not just observing at a distance something sacred and holy. Richard Rohr goes on to say, and this is his quote, from the perspective of participation, we see that most of religious and church history has been largely preoccupied with religious ideas about which we could be wrong or right. And when it is all about ideas, we do not have to be a part of it or participate in it. We just need to talk correctly about it. Is this, is this landing for some of you? Maybe you've been in traditions where, yes, there's some, I see that. When we observe something, when we're just watching something, we can avoid actually living out of our beliefs and walking our talk, end of quote. In other words, the mystics and those they inspire lead the way in participating in a divine, sacred, interconnected, holy reality, and then they let that reality infuse their living. It makes me think about Karen Hutt's sermon from last week, and I see Karen up in the balcony. I'm just going to say, Karen, that was an awesome sermon last week, and if you haven't listened to it, if you haven't listened to it, Listen to it, because Karen challenged us last Sunday. She laid down this challenge to us to take seriously the living of our faith and the living and expression of our values. And I can't stop thinking about this question she put out there to all of us. She said to us, if you were accused of being a Unitarian Universalist, would there be enough evidence in your living in the practice of your faith, in the way you participated in your understanding of your faith to actually convict you. If you were accused of being a Unitarian Universalist, would they be able to say, yeah, there's enough evidence in this person's living that that is true? Richard Rohr asks a similar question. He says this, does one's life give 
any evidence of an encounter with the divine or with the cosmos or with the holy. In other words, Richard Rohr is asking, when you've had this experience of unity, of intimacy with creation itself, with the divine, with the natural world, with the cosmos, whatever it is, what is your response? Do you have this deep moment of insight and radical interconnectedness and what that calls out of you as far as justice and love and compassion? Or do you just fall back into the habits and patterns of your life? Does that encounter change you? Or do you continue to reflect the predictable cultural values and biases of the group you're a part of? So I want to say again, many of us have had these moments, right? These moments of piercing insight, deep sense of connectedness, something that just comes to the front of our consciousness. I will live with this awareness for the rest of my life. And then a week or an hour or just a little while later, you're back into the normal thing, that insight no longer guiding you. So this is where I want to invite us to connect this conversation to our monthly theme, this theme of taking our place and making room. Every month, Reverend Ruth does a really, I think, great job of writing up the theme, some reflections and uh, insights about the theme. And this month, she wrote this. What would it be like to pause and risk asking ourselves this question? What needs to happen right now? What needs to happen right now instead of following the same old patterns leading us to the same old places again and again? What would it be like to evoke a sense of stepping back or perhaps stepping more fully and consciously in as we attentively observe our own reactions and the dynamics of a situation or group and ask, what needs to happen right now? And I really hear, deeply hear echoes of the mystics in Ruth's reflection of their reaching beyond the regular patterns and practices to discover a new practice. It might be a chant or an ecstatic dance or a meditation or attentiveness, a mindfulness. It might be deep curiosity, something that leads us to a new place and closer to that union with the divine. Or in other words, said in the words of a poet, William Stafford, you who are hearing this, be ready. Starting here, what do you want to remember? Do you want to remember how precious the life of a child is? And that children, all children, are our children? That we raise them together, we care for them together, they are our beloveds? Do you want to remember the sun? coming in on the carpet? Do you want to remember the moment when you walked in wondering, first time here, what is this going to be like? And then you settled down and felt an embrace and a belonging? Do you want to remember that energy that propelled you out of your habit and routine on Sunday morning up these steps into this space? What is it you want to remember? The poet asks, will you ever bring a better gift for the world than the breathing respect that you carry wherever you go right now? Are you waiting for time to show you some better thoughts than the ones you're having right here? 
When you turn around, starting here, lift this new glimpse that you found, whatever it is. Carry into evening all that you want from this day. This interval you spent reading or hearing this, keep it for life. What can anyone give you greater than now, starting here, right in this room, when you turn around? There's a mystical thread in that poem. And our monthly theme and this poem are one big invitation to notice, to pay attention, to see those connections and interconnectedness. The poet is saying, in essence, we are a part of something rather than just observing something. So notice what you see and feel and hear and understand. Notice love in your life. Notice pain and sorrow. Notice what is confusing. Do not observe your life at a distance. Participate in your life. This is your life in this moment. Find union with the holy in this moment. So friends, here's what I wonder this morning. And I will say I have struggled with this sermon because the mystics at the end of the day are the first to admit that it is impossible to talk about this experience they're having. So they use words, these clumsy, clumsy tools. They use metaphors, which help. They use analogies, which help. But at the end of the day, it is still a difficult task. And so I hope that this is coming together in a coherent way. And here's what I wonder, because it is hard to talk about these experiences. Does union, does this mystical connection with all of creation, does deep noticing have the potential to help us blow up white supremacy, sexism, transphobia, gender oppression, patriarchy, and more? Because once we've experienced oneness, once we felt that we're a part of something larger than ourselves, not a tribe or a political party or a religious affiliation, but something larger than that, once we have felt that oneness and recognized every other person and thing is a part of that as well, even in our unique particularity, do we begin to see and act differently? Do we begin to see that those systems of harm are simply cultural constructions? They are human creations and human manifestations, and they are not the underlying reality, the really real of creation itself. Does union, does mystical connection, does paying deep attention help us step forward in new ways, less tied to our ego? And does it reveal in new ways to us that things like racism and anti-Semitism and homophobia are just false Narratives. They are piles of garbage and lies that are built up to benefit some and then to exploit and harm and deny the humanity of others. Let me bring this into my own life for a moment. Here's what I notice. When I can move forward with my ego not in the lead, when I can move forward by kind of, um, let me start this over. I want to start what I want to share with you what happens when I actually lead with my ego, because <laughs> this is probably more telling as, a, as an illustration. When I move forward with my ego in front, paying attention to like my identity and how I'm, I'm 
showing up in the world and maybe just staying a bit distanced from what is happening in front of me in my family or my ministry or other spaces. And then from that place of ego and a little bit of like, well, I'm kind of the expert here and uh, watching this thing unfold, I offer my expert opinion and commentary on what is happening. And I don't really see myself as a part of it. I'm somehow removed from what's in front of me, the scene that's in front of me. And when I move forward like that, I think I am much, much more likely to do harm to the people I'm in relationship with. And I certainly am not seeing myself clearly. But when I, or maybe when we move forward and we surrender our egos and our certainty, or at least keep our egos in check, and we are curious and willing to listen, we might experience something profound. We may take up a new kind of space, a space that doesn't push others out or silence others, but invites us to hold and acknowledge all of the realities that are part of creation. So this month, and every month really for the rest of your lives, we are asking ourselves these questions. Are we waiting for some better experience of the holy, of the divine? Are we waiting for some other deep proof of deep interconnectedness? Are we continuing to reflect the predictable cultural values and biases of our group when we have these insights? Or the other side of that equation, the other questions we can think about as we recall these mystical experiences we've had in our lives or these moments of deep insight and we let them work on us, do we, with love and compassion and curiosity, say, I'm in? Do we commit ourselves to that underlying sacred reality we've glimpsed and say, I'm in? I'm in for wholehearted participation in this beautiful and troubled world. I'm in holding my own brokenheartedness and beauty, my own blessedness and brokenness, and holding the fullness of your beauty and brokenness, recognizing we are all beloved, all needed. Do we say, I'm in? Working to dismantle white supremacy culture and practices, do we say, I'm in letting our lives be living testimony, living evidence of the encounter we've had with love, with our connectedness to creation. I'm in, we can say. I'm in. We're in. This is the practice of faith. May this be the practice of this faith community. Together, we're in. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.